Well, from this point forward in the next couple of chapters finishing up the book of Matthew, we begin to see Jesus heading into first his trial, second his death, and then his resurrection. We're going to actually see a series of trials. Um, Some say five, some count it differently. But he goes to the Sanhedrin, and then um, this is where uh, we take a look again at Peter during this trial, taking a quick look. But from the Sanhedrin, he goes to Pilate. From Pilate, he goes to Herod. From Herod, he goes back to Pilate again. And then, of course, the story of Barabbas is in there. And uh, so there's, there's a number of just very impactful moments in these last couple of chapters. So far, we've seen the Lord at the Last Supper in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus praying, disciples sleeping. <laughs> and then Jesus arrested and bound. He's bound. And he's heading now towards the trial And uh, some people, they they see a couple of moments where Jesus was hit. But if you look at all four Gospels, almost immediately after Jesus was bound in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was continually hit, spit upon, slapped, beaten, continuously during his time of arrest and trials. Well, in chapter 26, verse 57 And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Don't forget, this is Passover night, the biggest holiday of the year. And they're leaving their families. They're leaving their homes for a top secret meeting at the high priest's house. Now understand where these scribes and elders and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin lived was probably in the same neighborhood, sort of the priestly area neighborhood, very nice houses, very, uh, you know, gated communities. Often a number of the houses would be sort of together and spill out into a common courtyard. And so these guys probably didn't have to travel very far just down the street But nevertheless, they made it to Caiaphas' house. And then a quick little note for later information. Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now, if you look at the Gospel of John chapter 18, Jesus actually went to Annas, the high priest, first. But yet it had him sitting in that courtyard as well. Why? Because it was probably the same courtyard. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas, who had been previously the high priest. Annas became the high priest in AD 6 to AD 15. But he became so wealthy and so powerful, the Romans felt threatened. So they fired him. Which if you know in the Old Testament, once you're the high priest, you're the high priest till you die. So how do you, what do you do with this? So probably some people said, well, even though the Romans have taken the the actual title away from him, far as we're concerned, he's the only high priest we have. 
So that's probably why they took him to Annas, out of respect, saying, you're the, you're the real authority here, not Caiaphas, even though he holds the title. It's interesting, in AD 15, Annas had five sons, put them all in as high priest, and the Romans fired all of them within three years. So in AD 18, his son-in-law now has it, which tells us something. Caiaphas wasn't so loyal to Annas. And also, the Romans liked him. So that sort of gives you an insight into what kind of guy this Caiaphas was. And so he's now in this, after Annas, he goes to Caiaphas, and Peter's there, cold night, shivering, sitting at the outside in the courtyard where all the servants are, getting, uh, you know, uh, warm by the fire, making s'mores. I don't know. I don't know what he's doing there. But that's it now. We're going to come to Peter in, in next week. But in verse 59, so now the chief priests plural, which is an oxymoron, can't really exist, but yet it does. And the elders and all the council that sought false false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. This tells you they did not come to find the truth. They came with an agenda. They wanted to find somebody that could say something bad enough about Jesus that there could be a death penalty at the end of it. This is not a just court at all. This is a very unfair court system. But as hard as they looked, witness after witness, they're getting exhausted. It's getting to be two or three o'clock in the morning, and they still can't find any. They found none, it says in verse 60. Even though many false witnesses came forward, here it says it again the second time, they found none. But at last... Two false witnesses came forward. So these guys were paid off. They were told what to say, practiced their testimony. In the Jewish court system, you had to have two witnesses to say the exact same thing. We call that suspicious. <laughs> but one, one person witnessing the murder, so to speak, it, they wouldn't, it wouldn't make it to court. The Old Testament says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, a fact is established. So there had to be two. Now, I'm not going to go into all the illegalities of, of this court. But the Bible made it clear there was to be no work done on the whole Passover season. Secondly, you could never have court at night. Completely illegal. They were to be held overnight until daybreak. And then the community is told to come and be a part of the court case. Because this is, again, what they felt would make it fair and honest. Everybody witnessing it to, to know if something shady is up or not. You see, our court system is very much taken from two places the Jewish court system, and the Roman court system. We're going to see them both here. But it's from those two cultures that we actually get our court system today. Almost all of it, without a, with a few exceptions. And so they finally find two guys, and this is what they came up with in verse 61. 
This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Well, even if Jesus said that, that wasn't a death sentence. Now they're making it try to sound like Jesus said, I'm a terrorist. I'm going to blow something up. The temple, guys, was gigantic. They didn't have explosives to blow that place up. Now, I will mention in 70 AD, Titus came with an army of hundreds of thousands of men. And with giant fireballs, they did. They didn't destroy it. They blew it up. But Jesus had no kind of power like that. He had no kind of military forces like that. So that would be like me saying, I'm going to blow up California, and they arrest me. For, but I also said in the same sentence, and in three days, I'll build it right back the way it was. So where's the harm? Well, you can read in John 2, Jesus actually said, you, if you destroy this temple, in three days, I will raise it up. Referring to the temple of his body. Now, the apostles didn't get that until much later on themselves. But Jesus never said, I'll destroy the temple. He said, if you guys destroy the temple. And so, these scribes and elders and the, the highest echelon of the leadership of the Jews were together, which would have been called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 guys, almost all Sadducees. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were very sad, you see. (laughs) They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe the Bible, the Word of God. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed when you die, you die. These guys were something else. The Pharisees were conservative. But these are the kind of guys you're dealing with who are just living for now and earth. And Jesus, remember, messed with their money flow. At the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry, he went in and turned over money changing tables, got out a whip and, and said, my father's house is a house of prayer. You guys are a bunch of thieves. You're ripping the people off. So they had a personal grudge against Jesus. But also they were worried because there were so many people believing in Jesus. I'm not going to read it, but in Deuteronomy 19, it's interesting that he says, because two witnesses are so powerful, they can change the destiny of a man's life. If those guys witness even the slightest bit of untruth, whatever the guy on trial was supposed to get, they were to get that punishment. But these guys perjuring themselves, out and out lying, they would not be put to death themselves, but they would be uh, probably paid off handsomely by these very wealthy religious leaders. Well, in verse 62, now the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What are these men testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God, who happens to be Jesus. (laughs) Sort of interesting. (laughs) 
Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and the coming in the clouds of heaven. So, first of all, just like our court system, the guy on tribal cannot be forced to speak. And by keeping silent, you're not to infer guilt. But yet this high priest, who is supposed to be the judge, the neutral party, (laughs) he clearly is on the team of the prosecution. And he's frustrated. Why? Because in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, it tells us what Jesus would be like during this time. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Got a dry spot in my throat here for a second, sorry. Uh, No coronavirus, just dry throat. And then in Psalm 38, verse 12 to 14, those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction. Plan deception all the day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. And like a mute man who does not open his mouth, thus I am like the man who does not hear and in whose mouth is no response. So this must have been very frustrating because Jesus act like he didn't even hear them. He's completely ignoring them. They're getting emotional and their emotions are going up and down. Jesus has zero emotion during this time. Like a deaf man, he's not even listening. And like a mute man or like a lamb who's dumb before it gets slaughtered. Jesus says not a word. Now, that's primarily the case during this time. But however, he did finally speak. Primarily, he was silent. But he did speak, but his words were very minimal. He simply says, as you say. Interesting, in the Gospel of Mark, it's more powerful. There... Mark, who's Peter. Peter's the author of the Gospel of Mark. And he says, Jesus said, I am. You guys remember that title, right? Moses talking in the burning bush says, Whom shall I say sent me? And he said, I am. I am that I am. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? I am. (laughs) Wow. Powerful. And so, after he says that, he gives them a quotation of a partial bit of scripture. That's when you'll see here, and really it was typical in the Jewish culture, you'll see it again when Jesus is on the cross. He doesn't quote the whole psalm, he just gives a verse out of the psalm, a reference, and that meant the students were to go and read the whole psalm. So Jesus just gives a little bit 
out of Daniel chapter 7, where he says, You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is saying, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. But it's not going to do you any good. And the day will come when you will have zero doubt about it. When you don't see me as this lamb to the slaughter, but the day is going to come when you see me as the lion of Judah, as the son at the right hand of the father. That day will come. Paul talks about this, doesn't he? In Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11. Therefore God has also highly exalted him, Jesus the Father, exalted Jesus, given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That day is going to come, those in hell, those who are alive on earth, those who have already ascended and are with the Lord, they're going to all see at one moment when the Lord returns at the end of the tribulation period. And they will all witness the truth of who Jesus is. I'd love to read that whole part of Daniel 7. In verse 13 to 14, listen to all of it, not just the little bit that Jesus mentioned. It says in Daniel seven thirteen. And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, interesting, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and then to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, and all peoples, nations, languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." So that day is coming where every eye will behold him. Of course, in the millennial reign of Christ, then in heaven for all of eternity. It's interesting, there's a number of earthly things that are going to be in heaven. Our nationality, our language. Interesting that God sees the creation of those things as beautiful and and wonderful. And they're the seasoning of heaven. We'll have a new body. But yet your earthly nationality will still be evident. The language, the various languages are still going to be evident. And so he goes on in verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of a witness? Look now, you you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he's deserving of death. Then they spat on his face, beat him. Others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? I won't take you to that verse, but in the Old Testament, it is very clear that if the high priest were to ever rip his garments, it's a death sentence. But yet we see this high priest ripping his garments. If it were to be a capital case, 
the men who heard the case were to be silent and come back in two days and discuss if the death penalty is still to happen. But here, they said immediately. Interesting, in the Jewish uh, Mishnah, it, it says this, that if everybody comes back quickly with a verdict of death and everybody's in agreement, you can't put them to death. Because somebody has an agenda here. And somebody's not really thinking through this saying, well, I, I guess, but I'm, I'm sort of waffling whether he should get the death penalty or not. If that weren't the case, then they wouldn't put him to death. These guys were unanimous, and it was immediate. You understand this? That the time Passover was over. Jesus was arrested, and before sunup came, he was tried five different times, <laughs> given the death penalty five different times, and by morning light, he would be heading to the cross. Do you see how quickly this has happened? There's so much irony in this, isn't there? The high priest is saying, I command you, because I have the authority of God to command you to speak. And here is Jesus truly with the authority of God, because he is God. Remember, he tells his disciples several times they wanted to kill me. These Pharisees hated Jesus. Many times, at different times in the feast, they were seeking him out that they might get him to kill him. They sent groups of Pharisees to try to twist things up to get Jesus to say something in a certain context different than really what it was meant. But he would say it nevertheless and be found guilty of death. But everything they tried didn't work. Remember, there's many times Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And they picked up stones to stone him. But yet the Bible says it wasn't going to happen right now because it wasn't yet the time. And he said, well, for which miracle are you stoning me? Well, it's not for the works you did. It's because you, being a man, claim to be God. That's several times in the Gospels. That's why it, it sort of puzzles my mind when people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. <laughs> well, here's one right here. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? What was their response? Blasphemy, he claims to be God. Okay? If you don't see it anywhere else in the Gospels, you got to see it here. Right? He clearly claimed to be God. And interesting, in Jesus, the quotation Jesus has out of Daniel, the actual reading is not Son of God, but Son of Man. These are two interchangeable titles. Because Jesus in flesh was 100% man. Now, if I could rip open my flesh and show you my spirit, you'd see they were created at the same time. They're the same age. But if Jesus were to open his flesh, you would vaporize. Because you'd be looking upon the infinite God. 
In spirit, he was 100% God. In flesh, he was 100% man. And this is, again, what the Bible tells us, that God would come and be the deliverer for us, right? Remember back in Genesis 22 when Abraham's getting ready to sacrifice his son and the Lord stops him and says, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. And many other places does it tell us this. But a lot of irony. (laughs) They just celebrated Passover. What was Passover? They ate the Passover land celebrating that God's wrath passed them over each year as they would give a blood sacrifice. God would say, I'm not judging you for this now, but I'm going to judge you later. You see, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. It could only cover it for a year. It just, the bill is still due. I'm just going to bump it a year. I'm going to bump it a year. I'm going to bump it a year. And of course, eventually, payday was going to come. It's appointed to every man to die once. And after that, judgment. But as it got bumped year to year to year, all of the Old Testament prophets believed that a Messiah would come and take all of those bumps of the sin of all mankind and put it on himself, paying the penalty and take away. And so you remember that night when the Lord was speaking of the immediate end of the prophecy. Whoever had blood on their door of their house, the doorpost of their house, would live. And you can do this. Go right to the Bible. And it said very clearly, you put a blood in the basin on the ground. You get the hyssop branch. You put it on the top of the door. And then you put it on each of the sides of the door. You can see clearly. They all had the shape of a cross. The cross, the blood that was shed, would be their Passover. And here they're saying he's deserving of death. (laughs) If there's one guy that wasn't deserving of death ever in history, it was Jesus. And you know what's interesting? In Hebrews it says the soul that sins shall die. So hypothetically, Jesus could have hung on that cross for eternity and not died. But he did die. How is that possible? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ. You see, at this moment, Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At this moment, Jesus was bearing your sin. And when the court system said, you are guilty of death, that was you in Christ. All of us, the Bible says in Romans, were in Christ at this time. And Jesus was being beaten and bruised and bloodied. They had a game where they would put the, the Gospel of Luke tells us, they would put the hood over the head of the person and they would smack him until they figured out which person smacked him. And of course, if 
you know, just like in football, if a guy gets blindsided, he, you know, it's like, well, it didn't look like he got hit that hard, but he's out of the game. Because if you don't have that moment for your brain to process the impact, well, Jesus was beaten over and over again, but that was for us. That hit in his face, that spit upon him, was the worthy torment that you deserved. We often think of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. Jesus shed blood from the Garden of the Gethsemane continuously throughout Jerusalem until he got to the place where he would die on the cross. Jesus, before he got on the cross, was beaten and battered and bruised. It's so weird thinking about the creator being judged by the creation. Me and Cheryl often say, if we knew how much pain these kids would have caused us when they got older, we never would have had them. (laughs) Well, it's nothing compared to what Jesus went through. He didn't have just rebellious teens. He had rebellious mankind putting him to death. Well, in Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says, speaking of Jesus when he would be on earth at this time, He says, I, Jesus speaking, gave my back to those who struck me, my cheek to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. In Isaiah, in Luke 22, it says there, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, having blindfolded him, struck him on the face, asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things, they blasphemy spoke against him. So the emotional scarring, the physical scarring, how bad was it? Isaiah 52, 14 says this, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Literally this says, the time they were done, Jesus didn't look human. His face was so bloated. You think about it. After they put the crown of thorns, the blood would just drench his face. And then it was turned dark black, right? Like blood does. His eyes could probably barely see at him. His face was is, uh, just bloated. And with all that blood matted and, and, and dried... You saw him. It, was, it wasn't like the pictures you see on the wall. He didn't look human anymore. This is how bad it was. You know, people often ask the question, why do you think bad things happen to good people? The first answer is, there's none good, no, not one. <laughs> but it has only happened one time in human history where a good person, bad things happened to him. And he volunteered. That's it. It only happened once in Christ, and he volunteered. There's none good except Jesus. Well, finishing up here in Isaiah 53, prophesying of this very occasion, understanding it in its fullest, verse 3 through 6. He is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. There it is. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So interesting. All us like sheep have gone astray. So Jesus, behold, John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sheep took away all our sins upon himself. In Ephesians 1 said, in 1 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. It's the redemption comes through his blood. How do we get forgiven? Through his blood. How do we get the riches of his grace? Through his blood. Hebrews 10:4. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. They couldn't, never could. In Hebrews 10, 9 and 10, then he said, Jesus, behold, I come to do your will, O God, speaking to the Father. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The Old Testament gave us the law that could only show us our sinful condition. In Colossians 2, it says Jesus took all the law upon himself and was crucified with it. In Romans, it says the law put all of us to death. And you know what I might add to that? The law even put Jesus to death. But when he rose again, the law in Christ was also conquered, done away with. The old now has passed away. Jesus, under the law, the law ultimately came and and destroyed even a completely innocent man. Do you see that? The law couldn't help anybody. (laughs) The law, if there's one person who kept all 613 laws of the Old Testament, it was Jesus. But even the one who kept the law perfectly, the law still killed him. That's all the law could ever do is put somebody to death. It could never bring forgiveness. It could never bring life. But yet when Jesus raised from the dead through his blood that he shed, through being bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement that came upon him brought us peace and forgiveness. One final verse here in Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering... He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Through the one offering, he has done what? Perfected us forever. What's John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish. Is that the end there? Is that the end of John 3.16? 
but will have everlasting life. There's, there's no footnote on that. You will not perish, and maybe after a long probationary period, we'll you know, take it back to the high council of heaven and maybe let you go to heaven too. No. On the cross, he perfected forever. It is finished. To those who believe in him, won't perish, but will be completely forgiven, will be made white as snow. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we become the righteousness of Christ. Now I look in the mirror, I don't see the righteousness of Christ, but the Father from heaven looks at me and he says, that guy looks exactly like my son Jesus in righteousness. It's been imputed to us as a gift, not by works of righteousness that we've done, but he has perfected forever through his blood all those now that God's at work sanctifying, making us into his image. Glorious, isn't it? Well, next week we're going to look at Peter versus Judas and uh, two very similar experiences, but a very different outcome. Lord, thank you for your word here today. Speak it deep, deep, deep into our hearts that we can grow in the knowledge of you and truly come to live in life appreciating all that you've done, thankful for all that you've done, that we would just not minimize or forget how wonderful you are, Christ. We are guilty. You took our guilt upon yourself. You didn't sin, but we are sinners with a capital S. But you took all our sins upon you. Past, present, and future, thank you. Thank you through the work of the cross. The God coming into human flesh could completely in one second of time make us prepared for eternal life by your gift, by your grace, by your work on the cross and the resurrection. If you're here today and you're going, I'm not sure if I'm saved. Maybe you're listening right now at home. Maybe you'll listen to this later in weeks or even years from now. And here's the question. Do you know if you were to die tonight, you'd go to heaven? The whole point of the work of Christ is that you can answer that question with absolute certainty and joy. All you have to do is trust in him. I'm a sinner and I can't fix it. I can't go back in time and wash away not even the smallest of my sins. But yet I trust that Christ, through his blood, wipes out, takes away, scatters far as the east is to the west, buried into the deepest sea to be remembered no more. Christ can do this, and he did it, and I received that gift. I'm not worthy of it, but he loves me. He wants me. Lord, take me. I'm yours. Cleanse me. Forgive me. Wash me. Heal me. Help me now to be that fruitful person in the days and the weeks and the months and the years I have left on this earth, let me live as you have purposed in your heart that I'd live. I surrender myself to you. And if you're sort of in a backslidden case, the Lord knew about your backsliding. It was, it was paid for on the cross, but I've been backsliding for five years. It was all paid for on the cross. You now need to get up by faith 
No more condemnation. That's from you or from Satan or from the world. But there's no condemnation coming from Christ. You need to just shut, shove all that to the side. Let it go off your shoulders and say, I'm not worthy. I wasn't worthy before I became a Christian. I haven't walked really worthy after I've become a Christian. But I want to. It's God's grace that will get you up. The righteous man falls seven times. Seven times he's still called a righteous man. You've fallen seven times. You can get up because God's grace has seen you through all the way into eternity. Lord, I get up today. I believe that all my backsliding in these last months or years, I, that you've forgiven them, and that I have a brand new slate today, as I do every morning with your mercies that are new every morning. Cleanse me now, Lord. Let me walk in a manner pleasing of you, worthy in every respect. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen, amen. God bless you, and I hope you guys can come Wednesday night. We just started the book of 1 Timothy. Or uh, come online and listen to it that way. God bless you. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. Bye-bye.